You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Rock and roll suicide. All right, welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio. And today we're starting our third year on the airwaves, or whatever you call it for a podcast. Cloud waves? I don't know. But whatever it is, I hope everyone's been enjoying what we've been bringing you since the very early days of the pandemic, actually. And we've had some incredible conversations with legends like Linda Ronstadt, John Densmore of The Doors, Kenny Jones of The Who, sadly now the late Gary Brooker of Procol Harum, Mark Farner, Melanie, Bad Company's drummer Simon Kirk, and the list goes on. And if you like what you've been hearing, subscribe to us on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. Or if you're more of a visual kind of person, we even have a YouTube channel. But whatever you choose to listen, just search for It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast and hit the subscribe button. Then leave a comment and a five-star rating so I can finally sit with the cool kids at school and won't have to eat lunch with the foreign exchange students. Nothing against Isla and Sven, but you know what it's like to try to make small talk and finish? Now, in a minute, we're going to talk with Dennis LaCourier, lead singer of one of the most difficult to categorize bands of the 1970s and early 80s, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. No, he's not the guy with the eye patch. That was the late Ray Sawyer. But you'll be forgiven if you thought he was the lead vocalist, because as Dennis admits later on in our talk, even their family was confused about who they were hearing on those Dr. Hook songs on the radio. And did they have radio hits? Blow your whistle. Roll up something to take along It feels so good, it must be wrong We're freaking at the freaking ball Everybody wants her Says Sylvia's packing, she's gone to leave him today. Anywhere near radio in the 1970s and early 80s, you simply could not escape the music performed by today's guest. As lead singer and guitarist of Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, he lent his soulful voice to a slew of international smash hits that covered the airwaves like a musical rash. Whether it be irreverent party songs like Freaker's Ball, the cover of Rolling Stone, or passionate ballads like A Little Bit More, Sylvia's Mother, the disco-flavored dance numbers like Sexy Eyes and When You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman, this singer-songwriter and stage actor has spent his entire adult life making music that continues to challenge audiences by defying any formula and always offering the unexpected. He's also, to the best of my knowledge, the only guest I've had on the show who's performed with his band completely naked on stage, but we'll get to that a little later. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, 
Dennis LaCourier. <laughs> Thank you, man. You might as well add, I'm also the only guy who didn't know how to work this thing. It took us like an hour so we could hear each other. <laughs> well, we did it. Teamwork. I didn't do anything. Really, I am a fuck. I sat here and peeled the banana and I'm not even done. Technology beat me again. I don't mind admitting I'm an idiot before we say all the good things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, my audience so. assumes I'm an idiot, so you're in good company. <laughs> Yay. Uh, thank you for doing the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you asking me this. I looked at, you know, you had a lot of people that, you know, you spoke to that I admired and that I, I, I liked and stuff, you know, because you get weird. I got a thing a couple of weeks ago and a very nice lady, but she had a, a, a website called Ringside and it was about boxing. And it was all about boxers. And I looked at her website and she had one music thing and it was 60 seconds with Leo Sayer. And I thought, well, <laughs> what? 60 seconds? What? 60 seconds with Leo Sayer. And I thought, well, geez, fast KO. And I just couldn't, didn't understand why I would do that. But, you know, I appreciate it because uh, yeah, your clientele there was a goodly number of uh, people I enjoy. I've been a big fan. Thank you. I don't want to make it about me, but when I was 19 and I formed my first band, my only band, the first national act that we ever opened up for was Dr. Hook. Wow, where was that? Well, unfortunately, it wasn't your Dr. Hook. It was with uh, the late Ray Sawyer. Oh, okay. In 1990. Oh, okay. And the funny thing was, I'm, I'm looking around. I didn't know your name then, but I'm saying, right. where's the crazy guy with the acoustic guitar? You know, felt a little yeah. cheated, but uh, and we'll get to that later because I know there was a little bit of turmoil in terms of the legalities of all that. Oh, man, it's it's rock and roll. You know, anybody worked their salt has gone through a little bit of turmoil with of people course. that they profess to love. Of course. <laughs> now, you're living in the UK for, what, 20 years now? Just about, just about, yeah. I've always liked it here, man. I, I liked it. You know, I, I'm a New Jersey boy, Union City, New Jersey, spent a lot of time in Manhattan. It's the kind of place that swallows you up, you know, mm. and I didn't really know I didn't have any aspirations. I mean, I when I was 18 and 19, stuff like that, I was playing, sitting in, in bars, and sometimes I'd play drums, and sometimes I'd play harmonica. And, uh, you know, when I met these guys that we formed Dr. Hook with, they asked me if I could play bass, and I lied and said yes. I mean, I figured I knew where the notes were, so I said yes. But, right. you know, I just enjoyed doing that. And then Hook had some lucky breaks and stuff, and so that really wound up being like the mainstay of my life, you know. But I, I really didn't. I wasn't looking for success. I wasn't looking for a way out of Union City particularly, although I didn't know what I was going to do in Union City. But when the, the little breaks started coming, I just rolled with them. Yep. I was a chancer because, like I've said before, I didn't think the fame train was going to roll through Union City very often. Right. And it just led to playing in a bar and meeting some of the right people and making a tape that someone else heard. It's like everybody else's story, man, except, you know, we were lucky. And uh, I feel particularly lucky that, you know, I've endured for a long time because it's a it's a weird business. I mean, I know people think it's all cake, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of it is just pure fork. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we even get to the success part, I want to kind of talk about your background a little bit. Like you said, you're from okay. uh, New Jersey. What was your childhood like growing up there in the 50s and early 60s? It was okay. It was okay. I was an only child in a house full of adults. My mom had me when she was 19. Uh, her and my dad never even lived together, and they broke up. They were kids. You know, I was one of those. And so I pretty much wound up living with my grandmother and uh, some of my mother's other siblings. I was like an only child in a house full of adults. I was like, a, you know, a kitten in a pack of chimpanzees. And uh, that's how I grew up, and it was okay. I mean, I wouldn't say that I wasn't loved and I didn't feel loved, but I don't know that anybody knew what to do with me because I was only my mother's kid and she wasn't there a lot. And my grandmother loved me. So I was just being raised. You know what I mean? I, sure. I didn't have that, that mom and dad thing that they say you should have, you know, where your dad says, go ahead, you can climb that tree. And your mom says, but don't hurt yourself. All right. I had was women saying, don't hurt yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't join the Boy Scouts. I couldn't play football because, you know, I was going to wind up in a wheelchair. So I grew up a little cushioned that way, but I didn't accept that. As soon as I could, I 
I roll. I still don't drive, though. I have to tell you, I've never driven a car in my life. Really? So it, wor it worked. Yeah, it worked. You didn't need to. Eventually, you had limos taking you everywhere and buses. Well, not limos, but something. You know? <laughs> something. And when I was a, and when I was a kid, if there was anywhere cool to go, somebody was going. I'd go with them. I was never interested. In, I'm still not. I'm really, as you could tell, as we were trying to make the computers work. I, I resent <laughs> technology. <Right. laughs> Do you remember the first time you heard rock and roll? Uh, yeah, my mom, you know, being a young woman, she was 19 when I was born, she liked music. She was a young girl, and she loved a lot of singers. And I don't know so much if it was rock and roll, but it seemed to me she loved people with great voices like Sam Cooke yeah. and Johnny Mathis and right. uh, Johnny Nash. Who, you know, he had a big hit with I Can See Clearly Now, but before that, he was singing ballads and stuff, and he had a really lovely voice. But uh, so I just kind of gravitated to that kind of thing, and I really liked singing. I mean, that was all I really ever thought I wanted to do, but then I never would have even entertained being a singer for my life. You know right, what I mean? Right. You know, because I had a lot of friends that said, Yeah, I used to play trumpet, but there was no money in it. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. And I wasn't worried about that. I just wanted to do it. I wanted to feel something. And also, I was a lazy kid. I mean, you know, as soon as somebody said, hey, we like the way you sing, I said, all right, there you go. Now I don't have to find a job. But I'll tell you what, Don, I have never worked so hard in my life trying to not have a job. <laughs> you know? <laughs> What were you buying record-wise as a kid? I was listening to a lot of my mother's records at first, but the first record I remember buying was uh, Hey Baby by Bruce Chanel. Oh, oh yeah, with Delbert McClinton playing harmonica. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I love the harmonica in that, you know? And I yep. play a little bit of harmonica, too. I'm certainly not a... I play a couple of things in stuff on stage that sounds good, but if I played harmonica all night, you'd realize how limited <laughs> I was. But uh, yeah, first record, heard that harmonica, bought that 45. And, uh, and then, yeah, and it was nice to know later on when I was into the Beatles that Lennon talked to Delbert McClinton about the harmonica. I'm a real full circle kind of guy. Yeah. I like, I like when things come full circle and connect in odd little ways. I really do, because I'm not a religious guy, or, you know, and I'm not very jangly and I'm not very spiritual. But when things connect, that's about as close as I come. I think, ah, oh, all right. Maybe not for a reason, but a happy coincidence. Sure. You mentioned the Beatles. Did you ever get a chance to meet any of them? Only one. I met George Harrison at a friend's wedding a few years before George died. Joe Brown. Joe Brown. Oh, yeah, the singer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Legend. He's a, he's a friend of mine. Oh. And he got married. Uh, I don't know how long. I say I say a few years ago about everything, but it's probably like 20 years ago. Yeah. And George Harrison was his best man. And I was invited to the party after the wedding. And I have to tell you, man, I didn't even know if I wanted to go because I was so afraid that I'd catch him on a bad day or he'd had his fill of people who were fans of his. And he would, even in the smallest way, diss me and crush every organ in my body. <laughs> but he was a lovely guy. Man. He was such a nice guy. And I walked away thinking, oh, good. But I never, I've never met any any of the other ones. I always thought I might run into Lennon in yeah. New York because I walked around New York a lot, you know. And I remember being pretty, you know, because I love New York. I still love New York. Haven't been there in a long time. And I still, and I was a little embarrassed that New York is what got him. But if you listen to anything Lennon said, he loved New York. Oh, my God. I think he's more associated with New York City than he is with Liverpool at this point. Oh, yeah. No, no, I know. I know. He really was. And, and so that kind of calmed me down a little bit because sure. that was where he wanted to be. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Remember where you were when you heard he got killed? Yes. I was recording vocals in Criteria Studios down in Miami yep. with our producer. And we finished the session. I went back to the room and uh, I can't remember who called me. Uh, somebody I knew called me. And, uh, oh, my ex-wife called me and said, and when I first heard he was dead, I thought, you know, because there was so many things back then, uh, you know, there was the whole thing about Lennon was doing heroin for a little while. And mm. I thought I was so disappointed by that. And then he had that period where he was drunk and getting thrown out of the troubadour. And yep. I was thinking, John Lennon, a little decorum, please. Right, right, you right. Know? 
He was so disappointed. And when I heard he died, I really didn't want to know he OD'd. Right. You know, I didn't like what I heard any better. You know, I was in a hotel room in Miami and the next day we went back into the studio, but it was a kind of a non day. Yeah. You know, for me, I did whatever I could because we were booked time and you had to do it. But I don't remember most of it, I have to tell you the truth. I want to go back a little bit about Dr. Hook. I'm intrigued how, I mean, you were a teenager. Yeah. How do you manage to hook up with a bunch of guys that were a decade older than you? And from the deep south, no less. I mean, like Ray was from what? Chicksaw, Alabama? Yep. Alabama. George was from Meridian, Mississippi. Billy yep. was from Biloxi, Mississippi. Yep. Uh, you know, these are all the things that made me say to myself, this isn't going to happen again. And not even consciously. You know, I didn't have a bucket list. I didn't have a wish list. I would play with bands, sit in with bands. I one time played in a band. There was a heavy metal trio called Trinity playing in this little bar, the same place I started with hooking. And their drummer got in a car accident and they said, can you play drums? And I said, yeah, because <laughs> I was a drummer for about 12 minutes. And uh, I just didn't like putting them together. I used to try to put my kit in the car set up, you know, the bass drum with the pedal on it in the back seat. So anyway, I see, I told you I would digress, but I hated the equipment. I'm a drummer. I get it. Try to get a hi-hat in the back seat or in the trunk without breaking it down. But anyway, I sat in with those guys for like about a week, you know, because their drummer was getting better. And it was fun. I was playing stuff by Cream and stuff. And, and it was really great, you know. And, yeah. and, but I didn't want to do that. And then they told me the guy died. Oh. They say he died. And you can have his kit. You're our drummer now. And I didn't want to do that. One night, we were supposed to be playing a Sunday night, and I stayed home to watch George Harrison on the Smothers Brothers, and I got fired. But I didn't want to be a drummer in a heavy metal band. I didn't know that I was going to be connected to Ray and George for any length of time. Yeah. I, I really didn't. I thought this was going to be what I did for a little while, because that's all I was doing, man. I was really a chance of We got a chance to put some things on tape. And someone heard it and didn't know what to do with it and gave it to the guy who was the musical director on a Dustin Hoffman movie called Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is he saying those terrible things about me? Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't know anything about that, but they were looking at us to do some music in the movie because they'd like what they heard on the tape. They either liked my voice, they liked the roughness of the band. I'm not really sure. But some guys came into our rehearsal studio one day with a cassette and said, uh, here, listen to this. Uh, there's two songs on here we want you guys to learn. And, uh, and they put the cassette on. And before it started playing, he said to me, he said to all of us, don't mind the guy's voice, he can't sing. And he put it on, and it was Shel Silverstein singing those songs and shell silverstein happened to be a hero of mine i loved shells i used to listen to his albums and I, one time i saw him on a street corner in new york in front of colony records and i could not say hello to him and he walked away with a friend of his and i thought man i miss because he looked very gruff and mean he was actually a sweetie pie but he was bald with that black beard yeah I never said anything to him. And somewhere within the next six months, eight months to a year, they came in with this tape and put it on. So don't mind the guy's voice. And when I heard it was Shel Silverstein, I flipped out because I thought, oh, you know what I mean about full circle? Yeah. Oh, I could never say anything. And now here they want me to sing what his songs. And so I was in. I was in. No matter what, that, that movie wasn't even a big success. I was in Feet First just because of that association with Shell. So that and, and meeting these guys, like you just said, from the Deep South, they'd come up to New York, New Jersey area to see. George came up first. I met him. He sent for Ray. And then later on, Billy came up because these guys, they were all in bands down in the South when I was, <laughs> when I was in kindergarten, I guess. Yeah. And so all those things that should have never have happened to me, you know what I right, mean? Right. Being a kid from Union City, I lived a half a block from school. My trajectory was not very wide. I, I was just a, a kid. And all of a sudden, all these things that I sort of liked and admired were coming my way. And I, and I just went with it. Almost, you know, the leap of faith thing. Sure. 
I thought about it. And there were things I didn't like about it, but I thought, well, this isn't going to happen again. You know, what was interesting is when we played in bars, we were playing things off the jukebox, things that we liked, country music, the Beatles, Ray would sing a blues thing. I'd sing something by the Bee Gees. But we also had developed a personality. You develop a personality when you're playing for a bunch of people that could kill you. Right. <laughs> and you, and you, you do weird, warped, dirty versions of hit songs. And, and you know, we used to have a, a club owner that used to try to impress his drunken bar owner friends and say, Hey, boys, do that one you recorded. And we could play anything we want. We could play Proud Mary. We could play Let It Be. And he'd look at the other the guy across the bar and say, look at that. I'm getting them for $60 a week. Like we were the people who recorded that stuff. So we developed a personality. And Shell's music gave us original lyric to that personality we formed. You know what I mean? So Freaker's Ball and Sylvia's Mother... That would be a, a dirty version of Sly and the Family Stone song that we made up. And uh, I shall be released. <laughs> or I started a joke. The ballad, you know, the yeah. sensitive stuff with the insane stuff. We yeah. already yeah. had developed that kind of personality and so, uh, or multiple personalities, which kind of <laughs> wound up not being a favor to us. And Shell saw that. Shell saw that. Well, no, he didn't see it. He had so much material that we could pick and choose and fill those gaps in, you know? Okay, this would have been that song. This would have been that song. Right. And, and he loved it. He loved it because, you know, he had hits before us, country hits. I mean, there's probably 20 artists that recorded Queen of the Silver Dollar. Oh, didn't he write Boy Named Sue? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, but Queen of the Silver Dollar, for example. Yeah. He, a lot of people, uh, Emmy Lou Harris, Buck Owens, uh, Doyle Holly, Buck Owens, bass player had a, a minor hit with it. So many people cut that country. When we cut it, we put a horn section in it. Right. <laughs> you know, so we gave Shell's material because he was known as a country songwriter. Um, but because of Johnny Cash and all these people that were having hits with because he was in Nashville. And he was also a simple songwriter, a three chord songwriter. And when he started working with us, he'd say, you know, if you want to change the music here a little bit, make it a little broader, a little more, just don't change a single word. And so that's where he was with that. And so the marriage of Shell and the band was really like another thing that should not have happened particularly, but it worked so well. It right. worked so well. How was he in terms of material? Did he allow you to change things or was he, he came with the idea already in his head? No, no, no. He was a very limited guitar player. Like I said, when he sang Sylvia's mother to us the first time, uh, the chorus was completely different than when he sang it the second time, but the words were exactly the same, okay. had the same emotion. Yeah. And then he said, you're the singer, you know, you know how the melody should go. Just don't change the words. He would not let you change an and an if or a but they were there for a reason. Uh, but yes, he was very lenient with that. And he, and he was smart to do that because the reason people were only cutting his songs country was because he had a limited finger picking style. And so they would do it. Even Boy Named Sue was all boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka right. boom. You know, and we were, like I said, putting horns and, and stuff like that. So yeah, no, he enjoyed that. He would disappear for long periods of time. And one day he'd walk into the studio and he'd say, you want to hear a couple of songs? And we'd say, sure. And he'd go out, set up a microphone in the studio, get himself a chair, sit down, and he'd sing like 40 songs <laughs> and just blow us away, blow us away, blow us away with each one, you know. And when you got that on your side, you know, we could have said, no, we want to write our own songs. What are we, nuts? Yeah, right, are right. We nuts? I mean, this is a guy... To this day, we're probably the foremost exponents of Shel Silverstein. Absolutely. Other Absolutely. Even over Shell, because Shell didn't want to do anything. I mean, you know, when we did that Harry Kellerman movie, him and Dustin Hoffman were both supposed to be on David Frost. And he said to me and the band, I'm famous enough. You guys go on there. <laughs> he didn't want to do any of that stuff. You, you talk to them, you know. That's how I wound up doing a play of his years later, is he didn't want to have to deal with any actors. He said, well, you do it. You do it. I don't want to have to deal with any fucking actors. Wow. 
say things that shouldn't happen. Yes, born of relationships that went on long enough to even withstand changes right. and developments and stuff like that. And I just kind of wrote it, man. I wrote it no matter where it went. You know, I went from singing Sylvia's Mother, Carry Me, Carry. I also sang Freaking at the Freaker's Ball, you That's know. It, yeah. But then when the times changed and nobody would play us on the radio, we didn't want to break up. We had families. We were a band. So we started looking for material that would keep us on the radio. And then, you know, and all our freak friends went, oh, no, they've sold out. Yeah, sorry, we want to eat lunch. Yeah, but no we're trying. <laughs> We're trying to move this forward, you know, and I, I'm so proud of what Hook achieved. And, you know, when you were introducing me, you were saying, yeah, and then they were doing this, and then they were over here doing that, and then it was a little disco, and then there was a little, and we rode those waves, and people were going, oh, now they sold out, what are they doing? I loved it better when he had long hair, you know. You can go to websites right now, Dr. Hook fan sites, and they're posting old pictures of the band and putting comments on there like, oh, I don't know about those bell bottoms, Dennis. Like, I'm still oh, wearing them. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I think I like you better with a beard. You know, it's like that was 1980, you know? Can I ask it, you about those? Because I've seen so many live shows of yours in terms of on the internet, on DVDs. I mean, there's a just a great one of you guys on, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Rock Palast, I think, was that what it was called? It was a German thing. Oh, Music Laden. Music Laden, that's the one. Yeah, uh, the, the yeah, yeah. we got a lot of comments about that. Now, was that shtick, or were you guys really just, you know, having a blast? Man, we were never, never so stoned that we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Never, okay? When yeah. people ask me now, is it true that Dr. Hook was always stoned out of their minds? I'd say yes, and David Bowie was really from Mars. I mean, there was a bit of showbiz to it. Right, that right. That became our image, but we didn't, you know, we weren't the kind of guys, I, I can't say we, I'm going to start talking about me. I'm not the kind of guy that thinks I have to become an alcoholic to sing the blues. You know what I mean? You don't yeah. have to live it. You don't have to become that over and over uh, again. Any more than when I started singing Sharing the Night Together in Sexy Eyes, I was now wearing gold chains and going to nightclubs. No, I wasn't. Right, right. Was just, you know what I mean? Yes. It's, it's just a thing that changes. And, and people don't like you to change because it means they have. Yep. But you, and some people love that you have. You know, some people love that you have, but I've always been so proud of the fact that we rode those waves and we had hits, you know, not in the 60s, but real early 70s and, and all through the 80s as music was changing rapidly. And we ma we managed to stay, you know, stay in the public eye. We, we also had an international career that was hard to maintain back then because we're talking about before computers and before, you know, FaceTime and, and, and uh, all this stuff, Facebook and Twitter, you can't keep in touch now constantly. But we used to have, have hits here uh, or in the States. I say here, I'm in England. But right. we used to have hits here also in England and in the States. And then we'd go other places and maybe it'd be a different hit. And we'd have to kind of change that. And we used to like follow like the surfers used to follow the sun so they could surf. We used to follow the charts somewhere and tour where we were the most relevant. But you, it's very, very hard to keep those plates spinning yep. on both sides of the stage. Sure. You know, because then all of a sudden people, you can see it. America, okay? Sylvia's mother cover Rolling Stone. Then we became a support act. And we were out there with Emerson Lake and Palmer and Joe Cocker and you name it, we were playing with people, okay? And then we sort of disappeared for a little while. We went bankrupt because we were playing with major acts and trying to stay on the road with them and we were going broke doing it. So we filed for bankruptcy. We regrouped. We came back, had a hit with only 16. And then we, we went to Nashville, started looking for other material, had a hit with a little bit more. If not you, then we went to Europe and we disappeared. And everybody went, that's the end of Dr. Hook. But not where we were. <laughs> we were kicking ass where we were. And then we came back to America and we had another run, sharing the night together. Better love next time when you're in love with a beautiful woman. 
And so it looks like it was patchy, but it was always rolling somewhere. But now you put out a single, everybody sees it at the same time. Right. You know, you can coordinate that. We'd have to go somewhere and go, hey, remember us? And they go, Sam, oh, he's got a haircut. That's all right. You know, we'd ha- we had to show up to maintain all that. It wasn't a social media enterprise, man. It was a get your ass to where you need to be. Now, you could even say that when MTV came, yeah, that was the first death knell to real bands, real organically made bands that were not manufactured. We never, we never had a video on MTV. Even we, Baby we, Makes a Blue Jeans talk? They no, didn't let me tell you why. Let me yeah. tell you why. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that one because that's where I was leading. Yeah. That was about the time we needed it, okay? And it was a poppy song and we really needed it. And the label went to MTV. And it was also, do you, you know, if you remember the early days of MTV, hmm. they were playing whatever they could get from the labels. Right. Promotional films. Right. Whatever the groups wanted to do, blah, blah, blah. When we wanted Baby Makes Her Blue Jeans on the air, MTV said to our record label, which was not great in America, we were on phonogram and stuff in Europe, and in America, we were on Casablanca. And read some books about Casablanca. Uh, they yeah. were like tanking, okay? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was gangster time. Right. And, and the MTV came back to Casablanca and said, yeah, we'll put the video on the air, but we want 25 grand. And the label went, screw that. Mm-hmm. So we never got a video on. We never got a video on. Then after that, you know, you didn't get a vi- video on unless you were sponsored by Pepsi. <laughs> so. Right. You think that would have changed things? Or was the band ready to just say that's kind of enough? You know, can I be very honest? I think it would have changed things for me. I think if we were a video band all the while, it would have changed things for me because I've spent an entire career with people going, oh, I didn't know you saying that. I thought it was the guy with the iPad. I was going to ask you about that. Does that frustrate you? I'm 73 in a month, man. It doesn't frustrate me anymore, but certainly. What am I, an idiot? I mean, you know, I mean, you're going to do this interview. Would you like it if when you heard it, somebody else's voice was in there or they thought somebody else? I'm a very specific guy. I'm a very specific person and personality. At least I've always thought I was. And And I have a specific sounding voice. And for me to be there and do that and have somebody else go, now that was, it's frustrating for me. Of course it is. Okay. You know, but it wasn't as frustrating for me as it was for Ray, because even his family didn't know who the hell was singing anything because he was Dr. Hook. And we put out a couple, we put out one record. I don't know if it was only 16 or something. And they started playing it on the radio and Ray's family from Alabama called him and said, oh, you sound great on that record. And he had to say, no, that was Dennis. Mm -hmm. So that was his cross to bear. And me, we'd go to radio stations and people would talk to Ray like he was Ray and I was the the caterer. And then they'd say, would you guys like to sing something? And I'd pick up a guitar. So we were always waiting for our moments to go by. It was, yes, we were very good friends. And I think it's why we endured that. But I have to say, I think it's why Ray wound up leaving, because it was too confusing. He wanted to go have a solo career. Right. Our original talk here was about videos. If we would have always been a video band, people would have known who was singing. We were a radio band. Then, so you don't know. You don't know. You know, our audiences right now on the 50th anniversary tour that we're doing is from, you know, the original audiences and their kids. And they pass the music on to their kids and sometimes on to their kids. So we have four generations of people in that audience. And two and a half of those generations don't even know what the hell we used to look like. They just <laughs> like the music. Yep. And they're coming to see it sung and played well. And I got a great band. And if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Well, it's unfortunate because there can never be a reunion, obviously. You've lost no. three members. And oh, more than, yeah, yeah. We've lost Ray and Billy yeah. and our drummer, John, and Rod, who was in the band for the last six or seven years. So, yeah, there's quite a few of them gone. But, uh, you know, it's it's the music, man. It's it's the music. You can't, you know, I try to say, what am I going to do before shows? Have a fucking seance and see if I can bring... <laughs> 
You know, I right. mean, this is where it is. No. This is what yeah. it is. I didn't it, kill anybody. This is where it landed. You're actually keeping the music alive because if people don't hear it and don't see it, it it's a shame it could get forgotten so easily. Not just your songs, all music. I mean, of there course. Some beautiful songs are just kind of glossed over. Right. And one of the things that pisses me off, you know, it's funny. In the 70s, the highest honor a band could get was being on the cover of the Rolling Stone, right? Right. Now, 50 years later, the highest honor is another Jan Wenner-involved project, and that's being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. I think it's a sin that you guys aren't in. I don't know, man. There's so many bands out there. And, you know, and there's so much politics between us and the Hall of Fame. And, and I don't know. I don't know. I used to think, well, you know, Hook didn't play everything on all of their records, so that would disqualify us. And then, you know, look at the birds. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of bands that, you know, just the Wrecking Crew played those albums, you know what I mean? Yeah, the Beach uh, Boys. So that's not it. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine it happening in my lifetime because there are so many people that aren't in there that should be you know and, and so, so many I people who are in there that shouldn't be i know but i mean how are you gonna what are you gonna do about that because i think a lot i think when it comes right down to it man you know it's just like radio djs don't necessarily play what they like they right. don't lock themselves in the studio and play a record over and over again until it's hit a hit now not anymore you right. know yeah. it's not about that it's not about that. I, quite honestly, I'm finally to an age where I can honestly say to you, I don't know what the hell it's about. I really don't. I don't even feel like I'm in the music business, okay? I, I recorded an album about a year and a half ago. Did an album. Wasn't sure if I wanted to put it out as a solo album or put it out as a hook album. It would qualify as both. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the band I have right now, who is for all intent and purposes, Dr. Hook, again, sorry, right. folks, Right. That they're on that album, but brought it to a couple of labels, and the general consensus is, well, you know, the way it goes today now is that 70s groups stream a lot of music, but they don't stream a lot of new music. So it's, in other words, you know, they don't look at, well, look at this. In one month, they've, you know, they've earned hundreds of thousands of dollars just in streaming money around the world on these things. That doesn't mean to them, so if we put out something new, it'll do that too. It doesn't. And maybe it doesn't mean that. You right. know what I mean? But it's all about sitting in your room with a fucking abacus. <laughs> yeah, know? right, right. I, I don't want to. I'm too old now. And I'm not too old by any stretch of the imagination to do lots of things I'd like to do, but I'm too old to just sit here and watch the audience dwindle and say, okay, how many of them are still listening? Uh, it's, it's frustrating because I think, I think for me, I'm proud of what I've offered. I mean, I, I, like you said, it's alive. It's alive. We're right. an international touring concern. You know, we were doing a world tour for this 50th anniversary tour, and it was going to start in 2019, and we were going around the world for two years, Australia, Iceland, New Zealand, everywhere around the world. And quite honestly, a year before we were leaving for that tour, shit was selling out. And I was really proud of that. And then I got sick. I got ill. My kidneys. Uh, it was just a thing, you know, I go through a whole medical thing, but it was a enlarged prostate that blocked my bladder and my kidneys and blah, blah, blah. Mm, mm. And they said to me, no, 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 you, you're not going to be doing this anymore. It's not true because I'm still doing it. Right. But the truth of the matter was we canceled like about 70 shows all around the world. And it broke my heart, man. It broke my heart because it was the 50th and I wanted to celebrate that. Again, it was one of those, well, this ain't going to happen again. Right. You know, and we got here. Well, Hook got here, the specter of Hook got here, and here it is. Then I started getting back on my feet a little bit, and COVID hit. And now nobody was going anywhere. So three years ago, I had grand designs to take this band and Dr. Hook around the world. And now we're doing the UK, and you know we're doing pretty well, especially in this climate, because you find out how scared people are to still go out. Sure. You know? Sure. Because sure. nobody knows any. That's the thing. I mean, you know, I'm tired of playing guessing games, especially when the people with the answers are guessing. That's <laughs> it. Know? Nobody knows. You know, that's all you can get. 
Okay, you guess. You're probably more qualified than me. <laughs> but you're doing it. And, I mean, you know, you don't want to be responsible for, you know, 50,000 people getting sick. But in the same token, you know, we got to get out there again. So yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and we do it. Tough. We do it. You know, we do it safe. And audiences have been great. Speaking of audiences, one of the things you guys did that I think is just brilliant is that you mixed it up. You had a lot of antics on stage over the years. Mm -hmm. Like I alluded to earlier about, you know, coming out naked on stage and I, you know, cra crazy things like that being your own opening band. I think that's brilliant. Right. Yeah. I yeah, love yeah. it. What's like the craziest, wildest experience you ever had during a show? Jeez. I don't know. We used to do a lot of those things and we used to do those things, man, to tell you the truth, to entertain ourselves because we were on the road 300 days a year, you know? Yeah, the naked thing was weird because it was a Roskilde festival, which is a big Danish festival they still have every year. It's like their Coachella or whatever. And we played there as one of the headline acts. And it was summertime and everybody was naked, you know. So we're thinking, well, <laughs> if we get an encore, you know, what more complete way to respond to the word more than everything, you know. So we went out and we did, I forget what song we did, but we did a song, you know, the guitar players were lucky, <laughs> you know, some of, some of, some of us weren't, but yeah. And, and that stayed with us, you know, that stayed with us a long, uh, and then the opening act thing, it, again, it was in Denmark and we played in Scandinavia so much that we thought we got to give these people something different. We uh, dressed up, we found costuming backstage because it was a theater and they had different things. And I, put green makeup on my face and I had a long beard at the time and I braided it and tied my hair back and I played drums and Ray put on big sunglasses so you couldn't see his eye patch and we just mixed it up, played each other's instruments and we went out as Charlie Chillum and the Clumps. <laughs> and and what we said, what they said to, to the audience in Danish was, Dr. Hook is too drunk to come on right now, but they have another band they want you to see. And you'll listen to them while we walk Dr. Hook around the parking lot. <laughs> and we sent us out and we did songs like Knock on Wood and Sweet Little Angel and just rock and roll stuff and yeah. blue stuff. And, 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 you know, I sneered at the audience, you know, and we just we had so much fun doing it. And the audience didn't like us very much. And we, we were secretly happy that they didn't like us better. Right. Than Hook, you know. But we did, we used to just do stuff like that, man. We just, you know, because we didn't feel any pressure. We didn't feel any pressure. And we had the reputation of, in the very early days, like, are they even going to make it through the show? Which was ridiculous because we were always going to make it through the show. But yeah, man, you know, it's one of those things. It's like anything else. Sometimes I think back on it and it seems like yesterday. And sometimes I think back on it and it's a million miles away. And mostly because nobody said, you can't do that. That's exactly do right. That. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me. But I think record companies, for the most part, they just kind of counted their money. And as long as you delivered, they kind of left you alone. And if it worked, it worked. No, no, you're right. And, you know, it's funny because Ray's older than me by 13 years. And he used to tell me that, you know, when he was playing in bars, when he was the age I was, they all had, you know, frontline blue jackets, backline red jackets, you know. Yeah. It was uniform. It was Vegas. It was showbiz. And then groups like the Beatles and the Stones said, no, we're not going to wear the same thing, right. you know, and then it was hokey to wear the same thing, right. you know, and, and so it changed away from that. It changed away from that again. But yeah, no, there was, you're right. Hook just got in under the wire in the early 70s with that uh, nobody's told us we can't rule. That's it. And, you know, we had Acapulco, Goldie, and Freakin' at the Freakers Ball, but some heartbreaking ballads and just lots of stuff. But then once we came back from the bankruptcy, we started to realize that, you know, you look for what works. And the sound of my voice seemed to be really commercial to radio. Right. So we kept going with that. You know, and then Dr. Hook became a voice and a face, but they didn't belong to the same people. Right. And it was so weird. And I don't think it helped us. And, you know, I'm glad we were a diverse band and we did all those things that you said in my introduction. You know, first they were, first they were you know, skydivers, then they were uh, clowns, <laughs> then they were, you know. Because I don't think people ever got to grab onto us long enough to recognize that. And that's, again, why I say if, 
<laughs> we were an MTV band or a video band. And see, in Europe and in Australia, they were showing promotional films before they were showing them here. Right. You know? Because you guys so have quite a few. I mean, there's a promo film for Sylvia's mother. There's a right. promo well, that's, film. Well, that one for Sylvia's mother, man, we did that in the studio because somebody from Europe or something was saying, you know, we want to play this stuff. It was like there were no videos. That was like a thing we just did. And then we, we did another, you know, as we traveled and we were in Europe and stuff, they would all, different countries, different lab labels or different branches of those labels yep. would want their own videos, man. A little bit and more so, yeah, is one for that. Yeah, there's a couple of those. Yeah. And then after Ray left, I went in with the band and we did three or four videos without him in it. Okay. You know what I mean? Because this was what the band was now, you know, and, uh, I, the game was to roll with it, man. It really was to roll with it. I mean, you know, you had to be Neil Young to tell him what you wanted to do. But you got to be there from the very beginning. You got to be there from the very beginning. You know, you have to retain control. And I think a lot more people do it now because, you know, now nobody really sits around thinking, oh, someday I'll be famous. Everybody enters this thing with an attorney and a priest. Right, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah, the secret's out. Speaking of artists who have control, how cool is it that Bob Dylan covered a couple more years? Oh, yeah. No, I know. You know, I heard about that. Yeah. When I still lived in Nashville, I was playing like an acoustic gig or something in some club in town. And somebody came in and said, Bob Dylan, cut your song. And I never heard anything about it. And really what it was, was he cut it at that point. He cut it for that movie, Hearts of Fire. Right. And it's not even the same song. He kind of, he's singing to the, because that movie is, he's older and he loves this girl that's younger, this rock singer. And, and he's singing, he's making the lyrics up, as far as the movie goes, to her right now. And he's saying, I got a couple, and he's not even really singing the melody. He's just kind of singing it. And I thought, okay, well, that's cool. But he didn't really cut the song. But then that box set just came out. Right. It's an outtake and, from Shot of Love, really. Yeah, it's great. I wish yep. you would have made the album, but I, I loved it. I love, you know, again, full cycle stuff, man. Definitely. Full cycle stuff. You know, it's like a couple of years back now, maybe shit, almost 10, but I went on the road with Bill Wyman from the Rolling. Just going to ask you about that. The Rhythm Kings. Yeah, the Rhythm Kings, man. Yeah. And I, I'd done a benefit for Jim Capaldi after he died. They did a benefit for him at the Roundhouse. And everybody was in this thing. I mean, Pete Townsend was involved. Paul Weller was involved. I mean, uh, Ray Cooper was involved. Simon Kirk. Uh, John Lord. I mean, just everybody was involved. And it really was. I said back then, I said, you know, we rehearsed for a week and everything to do this big thing. And I said, it's like showing up every day and hanging out with my record collection. You know, <laughs> it's true. It really was. It really was everybody, you know. And Bill Wyman came and played a couple of songs. And while he was there, I enthusiastically ran up to him and said, uh, hey, Bill, love your band. Love to sit in with you sometime, man. You know, just come in, sing a song, maybe play some harmonica. And he just kind of looked at me and smiled. And he was with Terry Taylor, the guys in the band with him. And about a month later, I got a call saying, you still want to do that? And I said, sure, where should I be? And they sent me a 34-city itinerary. Wow. <laughs> so I didn't know I was in the band. But man, there, I will never be able to express to you how a child, you know, on my 15th birthday, my mother took me and two of my friends out for Chinese food, and we came back and watched the stones on the Hollywood Palace. Mm. And we were blown, you know, just, uh, and... I'm now sitting on a tour bus in the back of the bus and I look up front and Bill Wyman's sitting there. Full circle. Oh man. And everybody said to me, don't talk to him about the stones, man. He doesn't want to know about that shit. He's bored with that shit. But I said a couple of things to him in passing and he was so nice. He would sit me down and tell me what they were doing backstage at the Hollywood palace or the Ed Sullivan show. And he was such, and he's still, he's still like, you know, I don't profess to know the guy forever, right. but he's still a mate of mine. He sends me an email when Charlie Watts died. I sent him a thing because him and Charlie stayed close. Charlie used to call him from the road. Yep. He was on the road. And I said, hey, Bill, I'm sorry to hear about Charlie. I feel like I've lost a close friend. I can only imagine how you felt. Sure. And he sent me back a long email. And that's all I need to know. 
that's you know i wish i wish i could impart to people how little i've ever really wanted <laughs> but then i'd have to explain to them how little of that i even got <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds like a great life actually yeah but you gotta look back on it <laughs> you know what i mean you really do you have to look back on it to see that because when you're doing it it's all forward motion it's like when you're on stage if i'm on stage and i'm playing something or singing something and I, and I play or sing something that i thought oh that was good if i stop for one second to congratulate myself i fuck up the next word of course and and or if i play something or sing something i think oh that was no good i fuck up you gotta stay in the moment yes or or if you can think ahead I can't tell you how many nights I'm going over the chorus to the next song in my head while I'm doing a very good version of this one. <laughs> Isn't that weird how that happens? Right to do. I I've yeah. actually woken up in the middle of a song going, what am I playing? It's like, oh, I no, no, I know. I've done that a few times in the early days and I really, really try not to. Right. And you know something? It's weird because your instincts take over because it wasn't like i came to and was singing in monotone right. i was giving it that's it you're doing i was you're, you're, giving it and thinking yep. what <laughs> who and was doing this while i was gone right your body is yeah. doing it because yeah. it, uh, that that is a freaky sensation i know and you know what i always tell the band two things i tell the band you know there are some nights that you're going to be standing backstage ready to go and there's not going to be anywhere else in the world you're going to want to be but on that stage and some nights you're going to be standing back here because you're just people and you're going to wish you didn't have to go do this and on those nights act like the other nights <laughs> <laughs> That's all you can do. You can't will yourself to feel a certain way every night at eight o'clock. Right. You really can't. You can just go out there. And if you're any kind of person, man, you go out there and the audience greets you and you think, yeah, we're on, you know, because sure. it's not the same. You know, when you're in the dressing room, you're thinking, is it one bull? Is it two bulls? Is it a big bull? You know, <laughs> then you go out there. He charges you the one parry and the game is on. <laughs> The game is on, you know, and I like it for that reason. I hate the road. People say, oh, so you must hate the road, hate hotels. I'm too old to actually lie to you and say, no, I'd like, to, I'd rather wake up in a hotel. Yeah. I really wouldn't. When I was 19, I was on the road with Hook. Everything I owned was in my shoulder bag. Sure. <laughs> now I look around thinking, what can I, can I take that picture? No, you know, it's your comfort zone. Your comfort zone gets smaller and smaller as you get older. And I can attest to that because I am standing like a flamingo on one foot in my own comfort zone. So, <laughs> so is there anything else you wanted to ask? Because I do. I digress, man. No. I don't always talk about what we're talking about, I'm afraid. But it is what we're talking about. It is. Well, I assume you're talking to me, so I'm talking to you, yeah, you as me. <laughs> well, you've been very generous with your time and your stories. I just want to end it with what's coming up for you. I know it's like the worst showbiz question. What's next for Dennis the Courier? But what is um, next? I don't know, really. Uh, after this 50th anniversary tour, I got to take another look at it. I did a book a couple of years ago back of uh, poems and cartoons and stuff. I want to do another one of them. But um, it's always been so sketchy on how to get that out to people. But it's gotten easier now. You can get your own Amazon page, yeah. stuff like that. So I'm looking at that. I got three solo albums out that I love and that people, you know, there's something about Hook and something about the solo stuff I do. Maybe it's not for everybody, but I swear to you, Don, the people who listen to it and like it, love it. I mean, it's not either here nor there. You know what I mean? It's like, nah, or, oh, my God. And that's the people you look for. Of course. Oh, man, if you're making everybody happy, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> right. Or you're the Beatles. Yeah, or the Beatles. I know. My friend told me a long time ago, he said to me, you know, Dennis, you're never going to be happy because look at your heroes. The Beatles, you know, my icons and my heroes are like these people that they can't even believe they did it. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and, I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking, so how do I get near that? But I'm not really. I swear to you, I, I started this whole thing by telling you I've never really had any aspirations. And what I'd like now is I'd like Hook to be remembered fondly, and I think it will. And I'd like to now give myself enough room to see what else there is. Because since I turned whatever it was when Hook started, 
There's never been any time in there where Hook didn't just stop for a minute or was just about to start again. And I don't do a lot of things when that's coming up. And I really need to just look at the horizon and see nothing come over it for a while, because I know that'll scare the shit out of me. (laughs) And something will materialize. Maybe I'll write something. My motivation is I'm just out there trying to serve this material, this body of work with people that are coming who have never seen it done live. I'm trying to serve that so that they walk away and don't go, oh, that was nice, so that they walk away and go, wow, you know, because your parents told you and you told your kids and your kids told their kids and now they're all going, okay, old man, show me something. And I want to. I want to, I want them. And it's not, it's an, of course it's an ego thing. I mean, who walks out on stage and doesn't give a shit what people think, right? No matter how they act, but it's, it's a thing. I've represented this now since I was 18 or 19 years old and I'm going to be 73 in a month. And it's still there. People are still, I can see the looks on their faces. This meant something to them. It's very hard when it means more to them than it does to you. Mm. Are you taking it to the States at all? No, I don't think so, man. We've tried. We've tried. And I'll be very, very honest with you. The only things we were getting were uh, sort of package tours with. I know exactly what you're saying. I don't don't know. Yeah. Uh, I I, I don't know. I would rather somebody say, oh, where's Dr. Hook? Then, oh, that's where Dr. Hook is. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sorry to say that. I'm not being elitist, but it's mine. It's my house. I rent it out to people I want to live there. That's right. (laughs) How do you think the legacy of Dr. Hook is in the UK or in Europe compared to where you started? Is it another one of those things where Americans don't appreciate what they have? I won't say they won't appreciate it. I say that the Americans got it, like I said to you earlier, in bigger chunks, you know, in America, everybody was into it. And then, you know, like anywhere, they people get grow up, they have kids, they don't have disposable income for a little while. And the next time they want to check it back in with you, you better be doing something. You know, somebody asked me one time how I'd like to be remembered. And all I could think of saying was, the people that knew me will know who they've lost. And the people who don't know me will read about something written by somebody else who don't know me. And I can't control any of that. Right. You know, I just hope that whoever I've touched, they've gotten my message, which has never been, you know, and I I don't mean message like, you know, I just hope that whoever I've touched when they think about me, wherever they are, or their kids think about hook music, or they go, oh, I remember that guy. And I say, I just hope it's pleasant. I hope it's pleasant. I hope they laughed. I hope they smiled. I love seeing our audiences laugh and then cry. I think it's great. I think we all need it. I'm happy to be able to provide that. You know, I'm happy I can still do it. She's the queen of the silver dollar. And she rules this smoky kingdom and a scepter is a wine glass and a bar stool is a throne and the jesters they flock around her and they fight to win her favors and see which one will take the queen of the silver dollar home. She arrives in all her splendor every night nine o'clock and a chariot is a crosstown bus that stops right down the block the old piano minstrel plays a song as she walks in and the queen of the silver dollar she's home again she's the queen of the silver dollar Ooh. 
gown is a satin dress that's stained and slightly torn and her sparkling jewels are rhinestones and her shoes are scuffed and worn from the many roads she's traveled and the wondrous sights she's seen and I watch her and I pray God save the queen She was once an ordinary girl With ordinary dreams But I found her And I won her And I brought her to this world Yes, I'm the man Who made a queen Of a simple country girl She's the queen of the silver she rules this smoky kingdom And her scepter is a wine glass And her pastor is a throne And the jesters flock around her And fight to win her favors And see which one will take the queen of the silver dollar She's the queen of the silver dollar the great Dr. Hook right there featuring the vocal stylings of Mr. Dennis LaCourier, who I want to thank profusely for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Now, if you're in the United Kingdom area, you can catch Dr. Hook starring Dennis LaCourier live this summer. Check out the show notes for links to his tour dates and more. Of course, you have an open invitation to check us out anytime at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Typed out is all one word. No abbreviations, spaces, or commas, please. But that little pile of crap emoji is perfectly fine. In fact, it's encouraged. We'll be back with another episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. And I kids. You're looking kind of lonely, girl. You like someone new to talk to? Oh yeah, alright. I'm feeling kind of lonely too. If you don't mind, can I sit down here beside you? Oh yeah, alright. If I seem to come on too strong. That you will understand I say these things cause I'd like to know If you're as lonely as I am And if you'd mind Sharing the night together Oh, yeah Sharing the night together Oh, yeah Sharing the night We could bring in the morning, girl If you wanna go that far Tomorrow finds us together right here The way we are Would you mind Sharing the night together Ooh, yeah Sharing the night together Ooh, yeah Sharing the night Would you like to dance with me and hold me you know I wanna be holding you Oh yeah, alright Cause I like feeling like I do And I see in your eyes that you like it And I'm liking it too Oh yeah, alright Like to 
get to know you better Is there a place where we can go Where we can be alone together And turn the lights down low And start sharing the night together Yeah. Sharing the night together